Amen. It is so good to uh, hear your voices um, as you sing. I want to invite you to turn with me um, in your Bibles to the book of Exodus. The book of Exodus, we are making our way um, through this story, the book of Exodus. And um, as is our custom, we'll be pairing this reading from Exodus chapter 14 with a reading from the opposite testament, in this case, We're going to be reading from the book of Hebrews. Just a couple of quick words of of where we are in this story just as we begin. Um, Exodus is really composed of of three distinct sections. Uh, The first section is the section in which uh, the Lord leads his people um, out of Egypt. Of course, it's the story of the I'm coming up in Egypt. It's the story of Pharaoh's oppression over the people. Um, It's the story of the way in which they're led out through the Passover lamb. Um, And that part of the story, that part of the Exodus story, comes to a culmination and a conclusion really in this scene, the scene from the book of Exodus when the people of Israel cross the Red Sea. And then from there, um, this story will transition really to the wilderness story. So they've been led out of Egypt in the next several chapters after this scene, the crossing of the Red Sea. Uh, The next section of that story will be their wilderness journey. The Lord will meet them with with bread when they're hungry, with with water, with manna, the bread that that satisfied them. It's the wilderness scene. And then that section culminates with the giving of the law at Sinai. And then there's a third section where they begin to construct the tabernacle. So um, we're at the very culmination of the first part in this particular place. So I'm going to be reading from Exodus chapter 14 as well as Hebrews. Would you listen closely and carefully to this God's word? Then the Lord said to Moses, tell the people of Israel to turn back and encamp in front of Pihahirath, between Migdal and the sea, in front of Baal Zephon, you shall encamp facing it by the sea. For Pharaoh will say of the people of Israel, they are wandering in the land. The wilderness has shut them in. And I will harden Pharaoh's heart and he will pursue them. And I will get glory over Pharaoh and all his hosts. And the Egyptians shall know I am the Lord." And they did so. When the king of Egypt was told that the people had fled, the mind of Pharaoh and his servants was changed toward the people. And they said, what is this that we have done, that we have let Israel go from serving us? So he made ready his chariot and took his army with him and took 600 chosen chariots and all the other chariots of Egypt with officers over all of them. And the Lord hardened the heart of Pharaoh, king of Egypt, and he pursued the people of Israel while the people of Israel were going out defiantly. The Egyptians pursued them. All Pharaoh's horses and chariots and his horsemen and his army overtook them and camped at the sea by Pahahiroth in front of Baal Zephon. When Pharaoh drew near, the people of Israel lifted up their eyes, and behold, the Egyptians were marching after them, And they feared greatly. And the people of Israel cried out to the Lord. They said to Moses, 
Is it because there are no graves in Egypt that you've taken us away to die in the wilderness? What have you done to us in bringing us out of Egypt? Is not this what we said to you in Egypt? Leave us alone that we may serve the Egyptians. For it would have been better for us to serve the Egyptians than to die in the wilderness. And Moses said to the people, fear not, stand firm, and see the salvation of the Lord, which he will work for you today. For the Egyptians whom you see today, you shall never see again. The Lord will fight for you, and you have only to be silent. The Lord said to Moses, why do you cry to me? Tell the people of Israel to go forward. Lift up your staff and stretch out your hand over the sea and divide it that the people of Israel may go through the sea on dry ground. And I will harden the hearts of the Egyptians so that they shall go in after them. And I will get glory over Pharaoh and all his hosts, his chariots and his horsemen. And the Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord when I have gotten glory over Pharaoh, his chariots, and his horsemen. Then the angel of God who was going before the host of Israel moved and went behind them. And the pillar of cloud moved from before them and stood behind them, coming between the host of Egypt and the host of Israel. And there was the cloud and the darkness, and it lit up the night without one coming near the other all night. Then Moses stretched out his hand over the sea, and the Lord drove the sea back by a strong east wind all night and made the sea dry land, and the waters were divided. And the people of Israel went into the midst of the sea on dry ground, the waters being a wall to them on their right hand and on their left. The Egyptians pursued And went in after them into the midst of the sea, all Pharaoh's horses, his chariots, and his horsemen. And in the morning watched the Lord in the pillar of fire and of cloud looked down on the Egyptian forces and threw the Egyptian forces into a panic, clogging their chariot wheels so that they drove heavily. And the Egyptians said, let us flee from before Israel, for the Lord fights for them against the Egyptians." Then the Lord said to Moses, stretch out your hand over the sea that the water may come back upon the Egyptians, upon their chariots, and upon their horsemen. So Moses stretched out his hand over the sea, and the sea returned to its normal course when the morning appeared. And the Egyptians fled into it. The Lord threw the Egyptians into the midst of the sea. The waters returned and covered the chariots and the horsemen of all the host of Pharaoh that had followed them into the sea. Not one of them remained. But the people of Israel walked on dry ground through the sea, the waters being a wall to them on their right hand and on their left. Thus the Lord saved Israel that day from the hand of the Egyptians. And Israel saw the Egyptians dead on the seashore. Israel saw the great power of the Lord used against the Egyptians. So the people feared the Lord, and they believed in the Lord and in his servant, Moses. Now this from the book of Hebrews, chapter 29. By faith, the people crossed the Red Sea as on dry land. 
But the Egyptians, when they attempted to do the same, were drowned. This is the word of the Lord. Would you pray with me? Lord, in your kindness and in your mercy, we ask in this moment that you would do the thing that only you can do. Lord, we ask by the power of your spirit that you would take these words that are in your word, Lord, that you would take the words that I've prepared and that you would make them alive by the power of your spirit. Lord, would you enliven them in such a way Lord, that they speak directly to our hearts and stir up in us fresh hope in the power and the strength of our Lord. And it's in his name that we pray this morning. Amen. I want to begin this morning with three words. Standard operating procedure. Do those words mean anything to any of you? So a standard operating procedure is a thing that businesses or organizations do to standardize a particular task. For example, Grace Fellowship has some standard operating procedures. We have the way we do certain things when certain things occur. We have a process that we follow. Um, Standard operating procedures help create a sense of expectation. It helps people know what to expect. I've been told that there are people out there that like to know what to expect. They like to know what the expectations are. Are are you one of those people this morning? Well, the Exodus story is our Lord's standard operating procedure. And this story of the people of Israel crossing the Red Sea the sea having been opened up by the power of the living Lord is even more particularly our Lord's standard operating procedure. There is a particular way that God saves. There's a particular way that our Lord delivers. There's a way that he does this. And this story becomes the paradigm of how he does it. So the main thing I want you to hear this morning, if you don't hear anything else that I say, I want to simply declare to you that there is a particular way that the Lord saves. There's a particular way that he delivers. There's a particular way that he triumphs over his enemies. And that's what this sermon is about. So the way I want to do this is first, I want to just summarize the long passage I just read. I just wanna make sure you see some of the highlights of the story itself. We'll move that through that kind of quickly. Secondly, I'm gonna give you some observations about the Lord's operating procedure here. There's a way that he saves and I wanna outline for you what that is. And then thirdly, I wanna end by just talking a bit about uh, you and me this morning. So that's the way we'll make our way through it. First, the summary of the story itself. If you want to look with me in verse 3. 
For Pharaoh will say of the people of Israel, they are wandering in the land. The wilderness has shut them in. See, the story begins with Pharaoh deciding he is going to, of course, take off after the people of Israel. We learn later in verse five, in verse six and seven, he changes his mind that the severe judgment of the firstborn dying isn't quite enough to break him, or it broke him, but it only broke him temporarily. And he is going to pursue the people of Israel out into the wilderness, and he's going into the wilderness, or he's going off with them, chasing them into the wilderness, because he thinks that he, they will be vulnerable in the wilderness. He can overtake them, recapture them, kill them. Whatever he plans to do, he thinks it's going to work because they'll be in the wilderness. But the truth is, is our Lord has led the people into the wilderness in order to lure Pharaoh out there and to his very destruction. This is the second time that we've seen this in this narrative where Pharaoh's plans turn exactly upside down for his own destruction. There is this supposed rivalry that exists between Pharaoh and the Lord. Pharaoh thinks he is the Lord's rival and that sense of rivalry ends today. He will do away with Pharaoh once and for all. That's exactly how it happens. Um, he does indeed concoct this plan to chase after them. Now, a second feature of the story is the people of Israel's murmuring. Look at verse 10. When Pharaoh drew near, the people of Israel lifted up their eyes, and behold, the Egyptians were marching after them, and they feared greatly. And the people of Israel cried out to the Lord. They said, Isn't it, is it just because there's no graves in Egypt you brought us out here to die? What have you done? Didn't we just tell you in Egypt to leave us alone? So we can serve the Egyptians? But you brought us out here to die in the wilderness. I mean, you listen to the people of Israel complaining and murmuring and you think to yourself, they've just seen the salvation of God in such dramatic fashion. How can they so quickly forget about that and complain? But then you look at your own life in the mirror and you understand completely how they might do so, don't you? So they see the people coming off, or they see the people or the, the um, chariots and they, the, the armies of Pharaoh coming off in the distance and they immediately lose their strength. They immediately lose their faith. And it's on the hills of that collapse that we get some of the best verses in all the Bible, verse 13. And Moses said to the people, fear not, stand firm and see the salvation of the Lord, which he will work for you today. For the Egyptians whom you see today, you shall never see again. The Lord will fight for you and all you have to do is be silent. This is the second time in the Bible where the word salvation comes up. You will see the salvation of the Lord. There's another time when Jacob is blessing his sons in the book of Genesis, and he says, I will wait for your salvation. And then here we get this word salvation. The people of Israel are about to see the salvation of the Lord. This event, this Red Sea event, is going to become the definition of that word salvation. 
If you want to know what salvation is, if you want to know what salvation looks like, look at this event at the Red Sea. And of course, as the story goes, the Lord bends the created order once again. He's able to provide for the people a pillar of fire to to guide them in the night and a cloud to keep them protected. He's able to keep the forces of Pharaoh away from his people through the wilderness as they make their way to the Red Sea. The Lord once again bends creation. He goes with them. John Calvin, the Protestant reformer, said that it's such a great story of how God delivers, but he delivers personally. He goes with his people in the deliverance. This fire and this cloud is his presence with them. And then, of course, he, he bends the created order itself when Moses stretches out his, his hand and the, the waters go up like walls and the people pass through on dry land. The book of Nehemiah will reflect upon this scene and say, in this moment, O Lord, you made a name for yourself. So that's what happened But let's think about what name the Lord did indeed make for himself here. What did he do here? What is the Lord's kind of standard operating procedure when it comes to salvation? Here's the first thing I want you to note. I want you to note that when the Lord saves, it's his standard operating procedure to save by grace alone. You know, if you, if you notice, the people of Israel aren't that great. In fact, in the book of Deuteronomy, when this scene will be reflected upon, the Lord will say to his people in Deuteronomy, I, I set my affection on you, and I loved you, and I did that, oh, by the way, not because you were the most numerous of all people. You were a small ethnic group enslaved in Egypt. I did not save you because of something in you. I set my grace upon you because of something inside of me. It's by grace alone. Notice how the people of Israel in this scene, and it will continue to to travel this way through the rest of the narrative, the people of Israel will constantly lose faith. They'll constantly not be grateful. They'll constantly murmur and complain. but it's the Lord's deliverance that will meet them. It's the Lord's grace that will go before them. It's the Lord's gracious provision that will constantly be a support for them even as he teaches them to obey. Are you glad this morning that the Lord saves on the basis of his grace and his grace alone? Here's the second feature of the way in which the Lord saves. First is by grace alone. Second is by his power alone. Earlier in chapter 13, it says that the people of Israel actually went out from Egypt armed for a battle. But it's here in chapter 14 where he tells them, you're not going to be the one fighting. Verse 14, the Lord will fight for you. You only have to be still and watch it happen. Isn't it so hard to be still and watch the Lord work? 
Do not underestimate how difficult it is to be still and to watch the Lord work. Have you been in a situation where you just had to be still and watch the Lord work? Because that's what's happening here. It's going to be by his power alone that he's going to save. Now, here's another feature of the way in which God rescues. God has this way, our Lord has this way of only rescuing, of only delivering when we are out of every other option. See, they're up against the Red Sea. There is not a fighting chance against the sea. They're up against an insurmountable obstacle, the sea. Their backs are up against the sea wall, and this is on purpose because this is the way the Lord works. He leads us to moments where we have no other option. And it's very important that you know that this is the way that he leads. Because if you aren't convinced that this is the way that he leads... You're going to feel like you, you missed a memo so ha- somehow if the technique stuff you're trying to do to when it doesn't work. But see, the Lord leads us to the places where we have no other option. So he does it by grace alone. He does it by his power alone. He does it in such a way that we have no other options. And then finally, he does this for his glory alone. The, the, the word is repeated so often in this narrative, but in particular in this particular scene, the Red Sea. Look at me in verse four. I will harden Pharaoh's heart and he will pursue them and I will get glory over Pharaoh. Verse 18, and the Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord when I have gotten glory over Pharaoh. Verse 17, I will harden the hearts of the Egyptians so that they shall go in after them and I will get glory over Pharaoh. This this word glory, this is a word we kind of sometimes say in church contexts. This word glory has to do with God's weightiness and significance. There's a theologian that defined the word glory as the full weight of God's godness is what the Bible means when it talks about his glory. In other words, in this scene, the Lord intends for the full weight of his person and character to to sit down upon, to sit down upon Pharaoh in judgment, but to sit down upon his people in freedom. And he does this so that his glory, we're told, his weightiness, his significance, his worth is known throughout the earth. So he does this by grace alone. He does this by his power alone. He does it when there's no other options. He does this for his glory. And this begins to hint toward us, toward another theme. He he enacts this, if you've noticed, through, through a mediator. See, Moses begins in this scene to stand between the people and God. And it's Moses who will stretch out his hand, and the Lord will act through the mediator Moses. Of course, God's activity here begins to find its yes and amen as the scriptures go on 
till it eventually finds its way to the person and work of Jesus. See, the scene when the Lord delivers his people from the Red Sea, it's, it's almost like a glass that Jesus fulfills in his person and work. It's almost like a sketch that Christ will, will color in. Because as we've seen so often in this story, um, the story of Christ himself is told in Exodus imagery. See, it's the Lord who go, I mean, it's Christ who goes into Egypt to flee the wicked Pharaoh, to flee the wicked Herod. Pharaoh, Herod, Harrow. <laughs> I didn't quite mean to say it that way. That's a new word for Pharaoh, Herod, Harrow. And it is Christ, it's Christ in his baptism through the waters, where he comes out on the other side and overcomes the temptation of the devil, even as he delivers us from our most ultimate enemies of sin and death. See, the, the word Jesus is a Greek word. In the Hebrew, it would be Yeshua, which literally means salvation. So way back here in Exodus, when we'll see the salvation of the Lord, we will indeed one day see it in the person and work of Jesus. And to make things even more interesting, the Apostle Paul says that this exact Red Sea scene is what has happened to you exactly if you're in Christ this morning. The Apostle Paul says that in Christ, we went into the waters of our baptism and our old life is gone, just like the people of Israel's old life in Egypt is gone. Our old life, the life that is ruled by evil and sin and death is drowned. And we're resurrected to new life in our baptism, just like the people of Israel are here. See, our Lord saves and he saves by grace alone, by his power alone, when there's no other option for his glory, and all of this points us forward to the victory of our Lord Jesus over sin and death. See, if you're here this morning, the Red Sea has also happened to you. I want to end this morning by just speaking just to you and me. I cannot possibly know. I cannot possibly know what kind of spiritual trouble you might find yourself in this morning. I cannot possibly imagine the way in which sin still feels like a shackle that has you in a prison. I cannot possibly imagine this morning how the weight of sin bears down on you. I cannot possibly imagine this morning the way in which the enemy of our soul, the devil himself, seeks to prowl around like a roaring lion seeking to destroy you. But what I can assure you of this morning is that there is a way out. And there is a way through and that this Lord Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. The same grace 
The same grace that is offered to this people wandering out in the desert somewhere is the same grace offered to you this morning. The same power that is available to this people of Israel wandering off in the desert somewhere is available to you. You might find yourself kind of out of options, but the Lord intends the weight of his worth to come down on you so that you might know him, that you might take hold of his promises. And you and I will always be tempted, just like the people in Israel, to look to lesser things, to want to go back to Egypt because surely things are better back there. But he's calling you into the freedom, into deeper freedom. Would you turn to him this morning? Let's pray. Lord, we ask that in these moments, by the power of your spirit, that you would make application to our hearts and to our souls. Lord, we ask that you would aim these words from your word into the deep places in our hearts, Lord, that we might be transformed into a people who follow you faithfully. Lord, we are thankful for such a great salvation as you have won for us. Lord, may it cause us to rejoice. We ask these things in the name of Jesus. Amen.